Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. Earlier this month, we saw the announcement of Israel-Morocco normalization, and now today, Jared Kushner, advisor to U.S. President Donald Trump, is leading a joint U.S.-Israel delegation to Morocco to advance that normalization process. To help us understand what all of these developments mean, the background of Israel-Morocco ties, and the trajectory that this relationship could take now that normalization has been announced, we are fortunate to be joined by Enat Levy. Enat Levy is a researcher at Mitvim, specializing in Israel-Morocco relations. Enat has been working on Morocco since 2013, leading study tours and delegations, and developing partnerships in various fields. Inat, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting. Inat, as I just mentioned in that introduction, your studies focus on Morocco and Israel-Morocco relations. Did you ever think that you would see the establishment of official ties between Israel and Morocco outside of the context of Israeli-Palestinian peace or something like the Arab Peace Initiative? Yeah, well, it was always a possibility, and it is happening right now. At least as far as we know, the Palestinians are not formally included in the deal. Uh, but in my research, what I was trying to do and or aiming for is to create a formula for a lasting peace that will hopefully continue longer than the six short years we had last time between 94 and 2000. What put the formal relations to an end was actually the outbreak of the Second Intifada, in October 2000. Uh, if in the future we will witness another round of fighting uh, when tensions are really high between Israelis and Palestinians, the Arab countries might be forced uh, to act in a way that will ease its internal arena. You know, there will be protests. Uh, so this is why I always take into account also the Palestinian issue. So you mentioned that period between 1994 and 2000 where there was uh, more engagement and more uh, aspects of a relationship. And as you mentioned, that came to an end with the Second Intifada. Can you provide a brief overview of the history of Israel-Morocco relations before December 2020 with this announcement of normalization? Yeah. Um, historically, Morocco and Israel, uh, uh, Moroccan Israel relations date back to the late 50s and were formalized around two main issues. One were security cooperation, mostly against the Pan-Arabism. And the second uh, was the need to regulate the Jewish immigration, emigration from Morocco to Israel. You know, it was illegal uh, until 61, but then there is a famous ship called the Gozit Sank, when uh, illegal Jewish immigrants, um, just a lot of them died. So um, since then, the relations became, uh, uh, you know, secret relations under the table, but it was very, very bold. And during the 70s and the 80s, uh, Morocco played a significant role as an intermediary in the Israeli-Egyptian peace process. While in the 90s, the Oslo process enabled Israeli-Moroccan relations to become official, and the two countries inaugurated liaison offices in Rabat and Tel Aviv, and the honeymoon, as we call it, uh, between the two countries lasted uh, until the outbreak of the Second Intifada uh, in October 2000. And then the formal relations were suspended. Um, but since then, ties between the countries continued mostly under the table, while the civic ties kept expanding and straightening. 
tourism is growing constantly, mostly from Israel to Morocco. And I can also, also we, we can also see collaborations uh, in, uh, in the music field, like in festivals, mostly Andalusian, and also in cinema, exchange of delegations, etc. Et and this was made possible uh, because the relations are not just relations between two countries. These are relations also between Morocco and its uh, Moroccan Jewish diaspora living in Israel. And it's actually the second largest Moroccan diaspora in the world after France. So these are very special uh, cultural relations. What has actually been agreed upon between Israel and Morocco so far since the announcement earlier this month about normalization? And what is this joint U.S.-Israel delegation that Kushner is now leading to Morocco planning to cover in their work there? Yeah, so let's talk about this delegation. Um, the American-Israel delegation started its first day today uh, of the formal visit to Morocco. And the delegates arrived via a first direct flight between Israel and Morocco, operated by the uh, El Al company. Uh, and please pay attention to the flight code. It's very interesting. It's LY555. And it means Hamsa, 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 which is, uh, you know, it's, it's a symbol, a mutual symbol between uh, Jews and uh, Muslims of Morocco and outside Morocco. And uh, the delegates will meet uh, with a few ministers and probably with the king. And also a few agreements will be signed, uh, and it will include the uh, interline agreement between the Israeli and Moroccan airlines, consular uh, relations and the opening of offices, plus uh, the whole issue of visas, uh, water finance and investments. We take into account the $3 billion uh, fund uh, made by uh, um, the U.S. And from this point on, uh, we will probably see the Moroccan relations, the Moroccan-Israel relations, uh, they will be developed gradually up to full and comprehensive uh, formal relations. But if everything goes uh, as planned, of course. I want to focus on one aspect of the relationship. You mentioned just before the immigration from Morocco to Israel, the size of the Moroccan diaspora in Israel with the big Moroccan Jewish community. Um, as well as the the existence already of tourism between Israel and Morocco, with a lot of Israelis going to Morocco. So how does normalization impact the many Israelis of Moroccan descent who may have familial ties or history in Morocco? Uh, well, I think it's impacted in both ways. Uh, in the Israeli society, um, it's recognized the role of the Moroccan Jews living there because their culture, the Moroccan Jewish culture, it was excluded from the Israeli main narrative for many, many decades. And now it suddenly became relevant also in foreign policy, not just uh, a popular culture, you know, the Mimuna holiday or uh, celebrating Chena or eating couscous. Now it has a significant uh, importance in uh, in political issues and in Morocco and uh, there was always warm relations between Jews and Muslims but it was a strict line uh, between not a strict line but there was some kind of a line uh, between Jews and Israelis when you enter Morocco it's easier to be a Jew than to be an Israeli it's not that you have to hide that you are an Israeli 
But if you want to do certain things, especially in partnership development, you, uh, you don't put this identity in the front. And for the Jewish community of Morocco, I think they historically always had uh, this relation, cultural, uh, religious uh, relation between the state, the, the Zion, you know, like uh, the historical Zion, even before there was Zionism. Uh, but then since 48, uh, it became a problem to be attached uh, to Zion. Uh, and now I think uh, also the Jewish community of Morocco can be complete, can be, uh, you know, just who they are, not uh, hide their um, attachment uh, to Israel, which was always there. At the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned that this Morocco normalization announcement comes after a succession of other similar announcements about normalization between Israel and the Arab states. We saw first the United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain uh, process has begun with Sudan. In what ways is normalization between Israel and Morocco similar to Israel's agreements with those countries? And in what ways is it different? Um, so uh, the, agreement, the agreement itself uh, was initiated uh, by leaders and policymakers. And the starting point of it is actually geopolitical uh, of all the agreements. Uh, the formation of an anti-Iranian coalition and the enhancing of um, economic and uh, cooperation and regional stability. Uh, but unlike the recent uh, announced normalization with the Emirates, with Bahrain, uh, with Sudan, and even the historical uh, agreements with uh, Egypt and uh, Jordan. I think Israel and Morocco have always enjoyed a unique combination of formal diplomatic relations, mostly under the table, and what's unique is that the vast civic ties between the people. And the Moroccan culture is already part of the Israeli society. When the Jews uh, left Morocco, most of them left to Israel. Uh, 250,000 Jews out of 270,000 Jews left to Israel. And this is why the potential of this uh, specific agreement is uh, the highest as far as I can assess. It's actually the agreement comes at the end of the process, which started from the bottom up and not started from the up, hoping that it goes to the bottom. And this is what's different. Moving into these geopolitical aspects, as part of the Israel-Morocco deal, the Trump administration agreed to recognize Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara. Can you explain a little bit about the conflict over Western Sahara, which Morocco is involved in, who is contesting the territory, and where do other countries stand on that question? Okay, well, in general, the conflicted territory is located on the south and western parts uh, uh, of Morocco. And Morocco has a historical connection to it, also recognized by the international community. Uh, but since the end of the 19th century, it was controlled by uh, the Spanish uh, colonialism, who came mainly for the phosphate uh, that uh, this land is known for. And in 1975, Spain was forced to leave the area and in, it was also part of the end of the colonial uh, era in general. Uh, the Western Sahara was divided then between Morocco and Mauritania, when the later one uh, gave up its claim. Um, before the Spanish uh, left the area, they promised independence to the local inhabitants 
who are called uh, Sahrawis or Saharawis, um, who are represented uh, by the Polisario Front. And just a year later, uh, this Polisario Front declared on an independent state called Saharawi Arab Democratic Republic, uh, in, and it's on uh, one-fifth of the area. Then it led to a war uh, started between Morocco and Polisario and lasted um, 16 years until the ceasefire uh, was declared in 1991. And it was decided that the future of this uh, conflictual area will be decided in a referendum that hasn't been uh, done until this day. And in the lead up to this normalization agreement, what had been going on in Western Sahara between uh, Morocco and the Polisario Front? Yeah, well, well um, there was some kind of uh, status quo. It wasn't, uh, of course, uh, everyone were waiting for this referendum and trying to set uh, uh, defects on the ground, making sure they have more on their side to vote for the referendum. Uh, but um, I think two months ago, maybe a little bit less, uh, Morocco started um, uh, an army operation uh, just near the border with uh, Mauritania in this area. Uh, because uh, there were some blocks uh, made by the Polisario, according to Morocco, and it entered. But you know, the whole timing is a little bit uh, suspicious if we take into account what came after. Also, a United Arab Emirates opening a consulate in uh, the Sahara, and then uh, the, uh, the American uh, recognition of over uh, Moroccan uh, sovereignty in the area. So we can only or maybe assume that uh, it was part of a big plan, but we can't know for sure, of course. And for Morocco, how integral to this normalization agreement do you think the incentive of the United States recognizing sovereignty in Western Sahara is, in other words, uh, if the Trump administration hadn't offered to recognize Moroccan control of the Western Sahara, or if the Biden administration were to withdraw that recognition, how would that impact things? Uh, well, I think it's a critical uh, incentive, and it um, it balanced the whole uh, equation. Uh, if if uh, peace with Israel uh, can be made possible, then there's no other choice than to add uh, the issue over the Sahara uh, and Moroccan sovereignty uh, over it. So it must go together. But I also think that the chance that the Biden uh, administration will pull back the recognition is very low, because I think it will um, it will harm the American. Uh, you know, the respect respect of the world. <laughs> they, they cannot just uh, one month say one thing and then uh, a few months later take it back. But there's, there are other things that uh, the administration of Biden can do. Uh, maybe um, take the time before actual uh, actions will be made or the budget. Uh, Etc. But the actual recognition, political recognition, once it was given, it's really, really hard to pull back. And you can learn also uh, from the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. Even though there were wars and army operations after the Oslo was fa- was a, you know a failure eventually, 
in this um, specific issue, but the recognition, it lasted. So I believe um, it will be very interesting to see what will happen now, also between uh, the, uh, the U.S. and the international community. Now there is a risk. International community is supporting the referendum solution. Now the, the recognition is putting the U.S. on the other side. What will happen next? So it will be interesting uh, question, and also what will happen in the area itself? Is it going to lead to a new war, a new violence? Uh, violence. We hope so that that it won't. But uh, all these options are on the table now, and I think uh, the different side uh, they recalculate their steps. They are waiting to see what uh, the administration of Biden will do, and. And this includes also, uh, by the way, Algeria. We haven't mentioned uh, it earlier, but it's part of this uh, conflict over the Sahara. It supports the Polisario. So all of these sides can uh, affect and uh, act in a way that uh, will change the whole, uh, the whole issue and what will happen with it. So we'll have to wait and see. I want to focus in on one of the points that you just raised, uh, the idea of where the United States sits on this issue relative to the international community and the global precedent that this might set. Over the past year and a half or so, the issue or potential for formal Israeli annexation of the West Bank has come to the fore. Um, how do you think Israel is looking at American recognition of Moroccan sovereignty in the Western Sahara? Could that be a blueprint for trying to solicit American recognition of formal Israeli annexation of the West Bank somewhere down the line? I believe that the tendency in Israel is to make the comparison between the recognition in Jerusalem as the capital uh, of Israel and not right away uh, to the annexation or the possibility of an annexation. And also in matters uh, of the American recognition of Moroccan uh, sovereignty over the, the Sahara, uh, there is no annexation, at least yet. Uh, but of course, there is a connection between recognition as a first step uh, that may lead to eventually some sort of an annexation uh, of the area, whether it is the West Bank or the Sahara. But I think we are not there yet. It's just, uh, it's still just recognition. Right. And, and of course, there have been other steps along that process. And this wouldn't be the only thing that contributed to it. We had earlier this year, the release of the Trump administration's vision for peace, which envisioned Israeli annexation of all of the settlements in the West Bank. So uh, certainly not the only thing uh, coming up here. Uh, just a last question to close this out on this topic, bringing it around to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, you touched on briefly before uh, Morocco's role as an intermediary in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict leading up to the Oslo process. Uh, how are Morocco's relations with the Palestinians today? And what kind of role, if any, is Morocco looking to play in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Oh, well, the Moroccans in general and the Moroccan authorities in particular have always had a warm place for the Palestinian struggle for a Palestinian state. But at the same time, they have a warm place for Israel and specifically the Moroccan Jews living in Israel. 
And during the 90s, Morocco took part uh, in the mediation process between Israel and the Palestinians. But since 2000, uh, after the new king, Mohammed VI, uh, uh, had uh, come up uh, to the throne, um, uh, and it was the end of the peace process, Morocco took a step back from the conflict. It was indifferent and refrained even from uh, being too much involved into it. Uh, it focused on its internal uh, arena. And Israel was almost never mentioned uh, in the king's royal speeches. And it happened only if there was no choice uh, to do that, if there was a war with the Palestinians. So, you know, the king had to call uh, Israel and Palestinians uh, to make peace with each other. Also, as part of his role as uh, the head of the Jerusalem Committee. Uh, so I think now it will be interesting to see if Morocco will choose to step uh, back uh, to its traditional mediation role, or will it stay distant? Uh, I think there is a risk for Morocco in each of these uh, two options, by the way. Certainly, and we'll have to see how these relations develop. I noticed that as we were talking about it, you added the caveat, um, you know, this is how things can develop between Israel and Morocco if things go according to plan or if things continue as planned. So uh, this seems to be just the beginning, the new chapter in the relationship between Israel and Morocco. And huge potential. Huge potential for really, really warm relations. An example we couldn't see or have with other agreements until now. It would be good if uh, things live up to their potential there. Enat, thank you for, for joining us on this episode and for sharing your unique insight on this topic. Thank you so much for having me. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to Israel Policy Pod all year round. I know it's been a very difficult year and a very challenging time for all of us, but thank you all for your continued engagement and support and have a happy new year. <laughs>